Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, let's turn over to Proverbs chapter 22. And uh, we'll be back into the book of Proverbs today. As you know, uh, we have been uh, um, dealing with our uh, Proverbs 22.6 that deals with the child training aspect, uh, train up a child in the way uh, they should go. And we, uh, we took about six or seven, maybe even eight weeks, and uh, went through every aspect of that. And I wanted to be able to uh, give you that as something that uh, where, where our church is at with so many young couples, with young kids, and so many babies being born. And, and some of you, a lot of you having teenagers, that now we can take that and use that, and, uh, and I'll help you with it. I, I said last week about, you know, kind of getting a, re a ready, quick guide, and, and uh, uh, Kristen over here got me a... Uh, she did hers this week, and very, 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 very good. So if some of you ladies or guys, it doesn't matter to me, want to do that, and we'll take the best of all of them and put them together, and we'll have kind of a ready guide that keeps all of the main principles before you that you can kind of flip through on a regular basis without going through the whole thing. But, Kristen, you did a great job on that. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And uh, so if you'd like to do that, get them into me uh, next week or two, and we'll take a look at them, and we'll try to go from there. So... We'll be back in the book of Proverbs today, moving on with the rest of the chapter. And uh, just to bring it back up, since we've been kind of out of it for uh, a couple of months here, uh, you should remember that uh, um, a couple of the keys to the book of Proverbs, if you want to study it. And I've told you many, many times, and just want to refresh your memory this morning, that the book of Proverbs, you know, fundamentally is about, about two men, a wise man and a foolish man. And, uh, you know, from a uh, historical application, the uh, wise man or the foolish man that he's writing to is his own son, Rehoboam, who winds up being a foolish man. Doctrinally, Exodus chapter 4 calls the nation of Israel God's son, so it's talking about Israel. Uh, but, of course, inspirationally, uh, you and I, uh, through a new birth, are in the family of God, and we're his children, and uh, we're his sons, and uh, it, it's talking to us. And uh, you're going to find that the, the book says that you're either going to wind up in life being a wise man or a foolish man. There's not really any other choices than that. And a wise man is someone who is going to do what God wants him to do in his life. Foolish man is not going to. Then you'll find that there's two women in the book. And uh, there's a strange woman. And then there is a virtuous woman. And uh, you're going to find that the, the strange woman is always connected with an evil man. And uh, the virtuous woman is all connected with, uh, with, with God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Historically, again, you know, the uh, strange woman will be Babylon in the Old Testament and all of the stuff that uh, was going on there. Doctrinally, it'll be the Antichrist and his crowd. And, of course, inspirationally, it'll be the world and religion and all the things that go along with that. Uh, the virtuous woman will historically be Solomon's wife. Uh, it'll be the nation of Israel uh, in a doctrinal application, or it'll be you and I as the church, uh, as the virtue, having the virtues of Christ. And, and you remember the book of Proverbs fundamentally. Uh, it'll be a collection of, of sayings, a collection of, of what we call Proverbs. And Proverbs is, means literally sayings. And uh, that will, these, these Proverbs will provide all the knowledge and the wisdom and understanding on everything in life that you and I are going to find. You know, Solomon, without a doubt, is the wisest man that ever lived. He lives around 1000 B.C. And uh, his 40-year reign uh, is a picture of the millennial reign of Christ. And yesterday in Bible Institute, we covered 
the first half of the millennium. Uh, a lot of material there, but uh, I told you then it's probably one of the milestones in the Bible that you have to understand. And certainly, as you saw yesterday, one of the most misunderstood uh, concepts in, in all the Bible. And uh, Solomon, when he reigns, he reigns for 40 years, and his 40-year reign, Israel is at rest. They're not fighting any other nations. Uh, in fact, one of, the great, one of the great studies in the Bible is the study, the contrast between David and uh, Solomon. Many people wonder why David uh, was not allowed to build the temple, though it was in his heart to build it. And I know, there's, I know the logistical reasons why and all those, but it's bigger than that. It's, most things are in the Bible. It's the picture of what they represent. Both Solomon and David represent Christ. They're types of Christ. And what David did was that he wiped out the last of the enemies that are in the land. Uh, all up through Joshua when they go into the land and Joshua fights those nations and they subdue those nations. But they never got rid of them all. And at the time when David comes to the throne, there are still the enemies of Israel are within the land. Now that land is the land grant that was given to Abraham by God, that is the Jews' land today, which is going to be where they reign in their millennium. And David, what he does is he wipes out the last of those enemies. And when David is done, there are no more wars to be fought because all of, all of the enemies of Israel within the land have been subdued and wiped out. Then Solomon comes in, no more wars to be fought, no more enemies. And Solomon reigns for 40 years, as David does, and Solomon reigns for 40 years in a land that is without war, totally at peace. And by understanding what the picture is here, you have David as a type of Christ at the second coming of Christ who wipes out the enemies of God. Then Solomon's a type of Christ when he comes in and establishes his 40 years without any war, which is a picture of, of the millennial reign of Christ. And Solomon on the throne, the reason why he is the wisest man that ever lived, and God chose him to be that and sustained him in doing that is because he pictures uh, during that time when Christ is going to be on the throne and all the world is going to come in uh, to hear the wisdom of, uh, of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as it says back in the Old Testament that all the nations were coming into Jerusalem to see the glory of God. When the Queen of Sheba came in, she was overwhelmed with everything that she saw. Uh, and, and you don't get that in history. You know, the devil made sure that uh, in a lot of things that history has been rewritten that you lose sight of what uh, really took place. You've got to be careful with it. And, of course, if you would go to high school or you'd go to college and you take a world history course or an ancient history course, you wouldn't hear anything about Solomon's reign. There'd be nothing about the nation of Israel. And you'd hear all about the Greeks and the Carthaginians and, uh, and all of these groups and the Babylonians and the Hittites, but nothing would be mentioned about the nation of Israel. Or if it was, it would be just in passing as a, as a by-thought or a by-word. Truth of the matter is that around 1000 B.C., the nation of Israel was the focal point of everything on planet Earth. For those 40 years, every nation on Earth knew who God was and where Jerusalem was and what it represented. The fact that you're not told that truth today or the fact that that has been covered up with all of the garbage in history doesn't change the fact that it is true. Solomon is the wisest man that ever lived because during that reign, he pictures the time that the Lord Jesus Christ will reign on this earth and his wisdom is superior to all the other wisdom of the earth just as Christ will be. 
And you know, one of the things, and I've always been a student of history, and I've always studied the why of history. I realize that when you study history, you gotta be, you got to be careful because when a man writes a book on history, he's writing it from his interpretation of it. And uh, he sees a lot of things from his angle, and you cannot help but putting those in there, and, and that's okay. But you've got to be able to stand back and look at it with a baseline uh, that keeps everything straight. And, of course, that will be the Word of God. And you'll find that, uh, um, you know, uh, we, we hear a lot about the Proverbs, you know, uh, in our, when our preaching and our teaching. If you go to a Chinese restaurant uh, and you get a Chinese fortune cookie at the end, it won't have one of Solomon's Proverbs in it. It'll have some Chinese saying in it that is supposed to be wisdom. And uh, you'll get a fortune cookie that, you know, you break it open and open it up. And, uh, but it won't have anything to do with what Solomon said. After Solomon's reign, this shows you how the devil rewrites history. After Solomon's reign uh, of 40 years, after 1000 B.C., as the nation of Israel begins to retrograde and go into sin, and by 606, 400 years later, goes into captivity. This is when all of your Eastern religions form. This is when Hinduism comes into being. This is when uh, Confucius comes into being. This is when the, the, the Greeks with Plato and Aristotle and Socrates uh, and, and Esophagus. Uh, he, he was really hard to swallow. But, but this is when all of these copycat wisdom come up. And the devil brought them into being because of the fact that the wisest man that ever lived had let his DNA on planet Earth so so, so deeply that everybody on planet Earth knew who God was, who God's nation was. And they were coming in from all over the world to see God's glory and the wisdom of Solomon. The Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter uh, 8, when he, Philip, meets him there uh, in the backside of the desert and wins him to Christ, he's not looking for Jesus. He's coming to go to Jerusalem to worship the God of Jerusalem and this is, some, this is some 900 years after the event took place. In his land, they were still talking about the glory of God in Jerusalem. That's where he was headed when God intercepted him with Philip and showed him that the new way now is to trust Christ as your own personal Savior and sets up for us a great example of soul winning. But all of the copycats come after him. The Greeks, the, you know, the Romans, the Far East, Buddha, all of the, all of the copycat religions that want to pretend they have wisdom. So when you go to a Chinese restaurant, you get a Chinese fortune cookie with a saying in it. They won't do anything in life for you. You want a real fortune cookie? It's a book of Proverbs. Taking the word of God in Solomon. He has all the wisdom of God and he writes the sum of that wisdom basically in three wisdom books. Proverbs, Song of Solomon, and Ecclesiastes. Three out of the five wisdom books found in your Bible, the other two being Job and the book of Psalms. Proverbs, written by the wisest man that ever lived, uh, will be your book that will give you insight. We talked about the high tower concept of living above the circumstances, building by biblical principles in your life, the ability to see a 360 around you over the obstacles of life. That's found in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs will be your high tower concept. It'll start and end with the book of Proverbs. 
Proverbs will represent every key principle and example and truth that would be found in the Word of God. I always thought that Proverbs was the central core of the Bible, that everything else in the Bible will, will filter its way back to uh, the book of Proverbs. It's been said one time of the five wisdom books that uh, Job, when you read it, represents the sufferings of God, and that's true. The Song of Solomon, when you read it, represents the mind of Christ, and that's true. Ecclesiastes represents the mind of the Spirit. And somebody said that Psalms represents the heart of God, and it does. But Proverbs represents the mind of God. When the Bible talks about, let this mind be in you in Philippians 2, 5, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, he's fundamentally talking about the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs will be your core baseline of truth in the Word of God. Proverbs will be your high tower to show you what's coming your way long before uh, any situation hits you. It'll show you how to be wise. It'll show you, if you're not wise, that you're going to be a fool. It'll show you the strange women of life, and I'm not talking about literally, but maybe I am. (laughs) But it'll also talk to you about the virtuous women and what they represent. Proverbs will keep you from the entanglement of the world and the flesh and the devil. And I've given you the breakdown when we started, but since we're moving through here, kind of recapping everything, I'll give it to you again. When you look at Proverbs chapter 1 through Proverbs chapter 8, every one of those chapters starts with the opening, my son, and, uh, or some variant of that. And it shows you in the first eight chapters, he tells us what exactly Proverbs is going to do for us. It's probably the eight greatest chapters in the Bible for you and for me that if you want to find out what getting God's mind will do for you, there it is. And then we have chapter 9 through chapter 30. And uh, we have the uh, uh, Proverbs themselves. Now, the Bible says that Solomon wrote, uh, I think it was 3,000 Proverbs. You don't have all of them. That even makes it more special to me because out of everything that he did, God handpicked what he wanted me to have. It's a lot like the Bible. The Bible says over there in the, in the New Testament, many other things did Jesus do and say that if they were all written down, it says that the world itself couldn't contain all the books. I like that verse. You know why? Because that tells me in my Bible, what I've got, what you got, out of everything that he did and he said, he handpicked what he wanted me to have. That makes the Bible special. You will never read the Bible like any other book again once you understand what I just told you. And then, of course, we get into chapter 31, which is the end result of everything in Proverbs, and that will be the virtuous woman. And uh, that represents, and inspirationally, you and me. All of those things. Boy, wait till we get the Proverbs. You thought we were in a long time in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. Wait till we get the Proverbs chapter 31. Now today, we'll pick it up in our study uh, in chapter 22, and we'll look at verses 7 and 8 here. And uh, I'm going to read the passage, and then uh, uh, we'll, uh, I want you to stand up and pray once I read the passage, and then... uh, uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk about it from there. It says, the, riches, the rich ruleth over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. He that soweth iniquity shall reap vanity, and the rod of his anger shall fail. Footswalker, would you ask God's blessing on our time today? Now, you look at these two verses, and you would probably say to yourself, how in the world do you talk for an hour and 15 minutes on this? I mean, it's pretty much self-explanatory. And I asked myself the same question Monday morning when I first looked at it. 
But I found that, as everything in the Bible, once you commit yourself to it and you start going through it, then God starts opening up the verses to you. That is a great lesson in itself. Because the Bible says that unless, Bible says unless God opens up your understanding of the Word of God, you're not going to get anything from it. And it's a thing where it all matters how you approach it. Now, we'll look at these two verses today, and again, we're going to glean out of them some practical truths that will, that will help us. There's some things that we need to be reminded of. And I know, the verses are really, I mean, look at verse 7. The rich ruleth over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. Okay, how deep can this be? Let me show you. <laughs> I mean, now the verse is, as I said, pretty much self-explanatory. And anybody could get it. But there's at least two things here that I want to focus on that I want you to see that I want to touch on. Now, the verse says, the first thing I want you to see is the rich ruleth over the poor. Now, that's because the world looks at riches and equates it with power. In most cases, powerful people in life will always be rich. Not always true, but I would say 98% of the time. Because money buys you and gives you the ability uh, to be over people who are poor. And we see it all the time. In most people's mind, riches give you the ability to live above everyone else. Uh, it puts you a status of eliteness, so to speak. And you can buy your way out of almost anything uh, you get into, where a guy, a young guy doesn't have any money gets into trouble and he can't afford a lawyer. He gets a uh, public defender, which many of them are very good, but uh, if you, if a, <laughs> but if you, <laughs> thank you for that testimony, brother. <laughs> Three to five with no parole, I do believe. But anyway, <clears throat> if you got a lot of money, you can get a great lawyer, and uh, uh, and uh, it, 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 don't think for a moment that a lot of money and a great lawyer can't get you some stuff with certain people that a bad lawyer and no money can't get you. It's just the way it works. It's just the way it works. Powerful people will always, you know, use their money and their influence. You know, in most people's mind, riches gives you the ability to live above those circumstances. And you can, you can buy your way out of almost anything. I mean, or maybe you have a business with a thousand people working for you. I mean, they all respect you. They, they don't call you by your first name in most cases. You don't even know who they are. They labor for you while you sit in the office, and it's okay. It's the way it is in our system of capitalism. But uh, you're over them, and they know it. It's your company. It's your business. You drive better cars than you live in a very nice house that they don't live into. They understand. Or maybe down south someplace or up in uh, New England where you have a big mansion and it's filled with servants that, that wait on you hand and foot. Bring you your breakfast in the morning? Bring you your coffee while you're in bed? Do all those things that your wife should be doing that doesn't? <laughs> or you should be doing for her that we don't? <laughs> False balance is an abomination, so you want to cover both sides of that. Oh, yeah, well. Okay, you come up and finish the lesson. Just because you're my buddy and I like you doesn't mean you can interrupt my sermon. I have thrown people out of church for less. Ah, I know. I like your hat, by the way. Too bad they didn't have it in your size. Anyway. 
And, and you know, too, in, in our own neighborhoods, the guy that's got the biggest house, the nice, big, grandioso house, and we're living in a bread box, you know what I'm saying? Or the neighborhood, you know, neighborhoods. Uh, you, you, you elite status to, to where people live in a neighborhood. Or what part of town? Now, in the Old Testament, with the nation of Israel, so you understand, uh, when a man had riches, and he was very rich, that was a proof that he had great relationship with God and was right. And in the Old Testament, God would bless a man who did what was right with riches. And a great example of that is Job. Uh, one time over there in Matthew, Matthew chapter 19, I think it was, verse 24, uh, the Bible talks about, uh, Jesus talked about, uh, 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 it was harder for, uh, uh, it was easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to go to heaven. And as the apostles scratched their head and they said, well, who then can be saved? And people look at that verse and they don't understand their response. Their response was based on the Old Testament that taught that riches were proof of your godliness. But we're shifting into the New Testament. I mean, in the Old Testament, you know your Bible. It was the physical kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. So the physical blessings are there. In the New Testament, where we were shifting to when Jesus made that statement, that's not true. Though most people, uh, most Christians and most churches and most pastors think it still is. You know, we live in a spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of God. But the Bible says in Luke chapter 21, or 17 verse 21, that is within, within you. So the blessings that we have, they may wind up being physical, that you need something, but they don't start that way. They start with the spiritual. And the true riches that you and I have are not in what you have in your bank account. It's what you have in your heart with the Word of God, which Luke chapter 16, verse 11, is, is the, the true riches. And, of course, we see in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, that the church today, the Laodicean church, that's exactly where they're at. They think the bigger the building, the more money you get, the more that proves that, that, uh, that you're godly. And, of course, Revelation chapter 3, verse 17 very clearly says that's not true. That's, a, that's an illusion that people believe because they don't know anything about the Bible. But in the world system, and unfortunately, as I said, in the Laodicean church, riches and money and possessions are viewed as power. And it gives you rule over people who, who, who really don't have much, or at least the illusion that it does. And you know as well as I do, the standard joke today is people who live in Johnson County. You know, Johnson County is the, yeah, I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to just tell you with me, Bob, here, don't leave the church just yet. <laughs> Johnson County is the richest county in Kansas, wouldn't you say, Bob? Yeah, I think it is too. Maybe in the country, I don't know. But maybe not the country, but it is. Uh, and it's hard for me, it's hard for me to get all this together because we don't have these problems in Raytown. Amen. That's right. That's right. <laughs> we don't have anything in Raytown. <laughs> they, they, they cut the police force in half. We got two old guys out there and they don't even have, they only get two bullets apiece. Budget crunch. And the standard joke is that people in Johnson County, because it's an affluent county, and I'm just saying right now, I don't necessarily believe that. I, I've met lots of nice people from Johnson County, but that's the perception. And, you know, people who don't have much and they drive through Johnson County, and there are some beautiful places in Johnson County, nice homes. And you're spread out over there, you know, and people see that. 
and they think, well, they're, so they get that impression. But that, that's not necessarily true. But it proves my point. That that idea is based on the idea that we have from Proverbs 22.7 that the rich want to reign over the poor. And so they see people that have all of this, they don't have it, so the standard joke is, well, them people from Johnson County, you know, they talk about them being snooty, they talk about them being, I've met some of the nicest people on the planet from, from Johnson County. And, uh, you know, it, it ain't much for turning out preachers, but it's, it's good for, it's, 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 it's good, there's a lot of nice people over there. <laughs> but in most cases... The more money you, you have and the richer you are, uh, it's just a fundamental rule of life. The more corrupt you become. And that's based on 1 Timothy 6.10 where it says the love of money is the root of all evil. Now, looking at that verse, uh, it, isn't the, it isn't the money that is the problem. It's the covetousness of loving money, wanting more money that is the problem. And it becomes a stronghold. And what Jesus was saying when he said it's harder, uh, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than a rich man to get to heaven is because riches will obscure your faith. Let me tell you something. When you have all the money you need, and we all want it, we all want it, and uh, you know, lots of Baptist preachers preach against the lottery and all that stuff. I've never preached a sermon in my life against the lottery. The only sermon I'll preach is after you win it, tithe belongs to the Lord. That's the only message I'm going to have for you. But but you've got to understand that, uh, that all of this, you know, what Jesus was saying was that riches will obscure your faith. When you have all the money you need and you don't have to pray about anything, you don't have to worry about the bills, you don't have to worry about this or worry about that, you just write a check for it, where's the faith in all of that? I remember years ago there was a there was a, a organization down south that was a Bible college and I, I wouldn't mention their name because I wouldn't want to embarrass Bob Jones University for anything on the planet. But they put out a magazine called Faith Magazine. And I used to get it. They just sent it to, to us, you know, and, and I thought to myself, this is the biggest farce and the biggest joke on the planet. These guys are living in palatial palaces down there. They never cut their grass. They never shovel the snow. If a light bulb goes out, they don't fix it. They don't prepare their own food. Every bill they've got is paid. They drive cars that are owned and paid for by the university. How in the world is somebody who lives a life like that going to write a magazine called Faith Magazine that's going to give anything to me? But that's just where we're at today. Now, nowhere, now where this proverb is so evident... And I, wanna, I want you to see it today. This proverb is, is, is more evident than any other place in understanding the example that will be in our own governmental system. Our government started in 1776, and it started with the idea of a government that was, for you that go, took civics class, our government started out at the beginning, a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. The idea that your government is your government. And the people that you elect as your representatives in Congress and the Senate and, and the President, they go there not to represent themselves. They go there to represent you. It was never intended that they would go there to push their own political agenda. It was always intended that they would understand that the government was a government of the people by the people, and most importantly, for the people. Now, somewhere in the last 
200 years, we lost that concept. And it's been lost. And it's become a power base of corruption. And all government will if you study the book of Ecclesiastes. We have our form of government as capitalism. When you go through the book of Ecclesiastes, you'll find that Solomon examines all of the ologies of man and all of the forms of government. Yes, he, 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 he goes through fascism. He goes through uh, capitalism. He goes through uh, all of the different uh, fundamental governments that you could ever have in life. He, he, he goes them all. And when he comes down to the end of it, he basically says they're all worthless. We think because we live in America... And I love America. Don't, don't, don't show me short. I love America. I thank God for America. I'm glad I live in America. I just don't like the century I'm in. But that's not America's fault. But America is a, it was a great country, and I love America. But let's not kid ourselves. We, we think the fact that because we live in America, and we're not under oppression yet, and we, don't, we have relatively freedom. You can go from state to state to state or country to country, and you can do whatever you want to do, that this is the best form of government there is. And it, it, that's just a natural thing that happens to us because we live here and we enjoy the freedoms. And I'm all for freedom. But I want to tell you something. Capitalism is just as corrupt as any other form of government out there. And you want a perfect form of government, there'll be no perfect form of government until the Lord Jesus Christ comes back and sets up his ruling in Jerusalem and then he rules planet Earth with a rod of iron. Then you'll have judgment. Because right now, Everything is about power and money. And, uh, you know, we, we, we come to the point where uh, we, 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 we lose sight of all of the things that happen. And our government, where it started, was based on the Word of God, based on caring for you, the people. Now they've thrown God out, and we have a bunch of people in office that all they care about is their own agenda, their own power. Now, I'm going to show you what I mean here as we go through. This is a great proverb. The idea by it that the government and the people, and they represent, they go to Washington to represent you and me, not themselves. Last week, we had a government shutdown. I was where, I forget where I was, and I forget what I was doing, but there on the big screen was a, was a countdown. Oh, I know where I was. It was over Joe's for the camp meeting. We were sitting around there eating, and on the TV was this big thing on Fox News, the countdown, four hours and 15 minutes and 23 seconds till the government shuts down. And there were people across this country that were going, the Democrats were blaming the Republicans, the Republicans were blaming the Democrats. And, of course, uh, you know, the news media was having a meltdown. They were having a heyday, and they were having a countdown. You thought we were launching a guy to the moon which is a good place to send most of the politicians if we get a rocket ship that big. And they were on there. Commentators came up. What do you think will happen when the government shuts down? And, of course, people were scared. And, and the politicians play on that. I heard one politician, and I don't, I, I, I don't know if it was a Democrat or Republican. I don't care. They're all corrupt as far as I'm concerned. They were saying, well, there's people going to die because of this. And as I said, the Republicans blame the Democrats. Democrats blame the Republicans. And all America watched with anticipation. And here it comes. Boom, 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 boom. Government shutdown. You know what changed? Nothing. <laughs> I remember when back we went from 19, 
the 20th century, the 21st century. Remember at midnight they thought that the power grids all across the country were going to shut down? We're going to go back to the Stone Age? We had a bunch of people over that night, and I don't. What, but I, I got lost in the crowd and went downstairs, and, and as soon as it hit midnight, I shut the whole power off of the house. <laughs> Fell over something in the dark and, and hurt my back, but it was okay. <laughs> Listen, I got a headline for you. If you don't hear anything else I'm about to say today, and there's going to be a lot of good things I'm going to say, just, just go home with this. Our government shut down years ago. It's got all the lights on, but there ain't anybody home. Nobody cares about what you're struggling with. Everything that's out there, if every issue comes up, before they decide if they ever get the decision, how it's going to affect you, they all stop and consider how it's going to affect their position. And then they'll make their decision of what they're going to do, not on your needs, but on how it's going to help them stay in office. That's the way it works. That's not the way it was supposed to work, but that's the way it works. That's the way it works. And, of course, it's just a big house with all the lights on and nobody's home. Nothing gets done. It's a quagmire. It's a swamp. It's like going to a schoolyard at recess and watching a bunch of junior high kids bicker back and forth and fight over stuff that doesn't really matter. We got a government that'll give lucrative contracts to dealers that I remember back when they, when they were still, I think they're still flying the B-52, but they were flying them back there. Somebody got upraised because the, the little roller casters on the chairs that the navigator sat on that he could roll from place to place, they were buying those for $800 a piece. Now, anybody here that goes to the grocery store and buys a light bulb that would pay $800 for a light bulb? Why? Because your budget can't handle it. Well, our government budget can't handle that kind of stuff either. That's why we're $14, $15 trillion in debt. Nobody's home. And everybody who gives a contract to somebody gets something back for it. It's just that simple. It's a swamp. Our government today is the greatest illustration I can think of of Proverbs 22.7, the rich over the poor. And you know what? We never learn the lessons from history. Somebody said one time, the only thing that man never learns from history is the fact that he never learns anything from history. Back in 1787, I actually believe it was June the 28th, our government had just been functioning for a very short time. And it had also come to a shutdown standstill. They began to fight and bicker. They didn't have near the issues that we have today. They began to fight, infighting among themselves, bickering among themselves, and it was a total collapse of the system. And the government, the government that was by the people, for the people, and of the people had shut down. They're going back and forth and yelling and screaming and nothing is getting done, much like today, only today is a much larger and, and much more complicated. Sitting in that room was the man we all love the most of all of the presidents, and we love to collect his picture, Ben Franklin. He's on a $100 bill, by the way. Ben Franklin was 81 years of age at that point in time, and he was in very poor health. 
And he stood there as the old man listening and watching and, and everybody going back and forth and screaming and just, just, just terrible. And he stood up and he addressed the Congress and the Senate. And he gave one of the most stirring addresses of his political career. And of all the things that he said, I don't remember everything, but I remember he said this. He said, men, gentlemen, 13 years ago, when we formed our country and came out of the deepest time of war that would have put us all uh, in the hangman's noose, when we formed our country 13 years ago and we didn't know what we were doing, didn't know where to go, in this very room, we all got on our knees and we asked God Almighty to give us the direction of where he wanted us to go. At the end of his address for the next three days, the Congress and the Senate of the United States of America brought in every preacher they could find and just let them preach the fire off the walls to them. And it brought this country back together. And I must tell you, as I've always told you, that that's the problem with this country. And I'll just throw this in because this will irritate some of you, and I'm in a very irritating mood this morning. <laughs> they didn't preach out of an ASV or an NIV or an RSV or a Douay Reims, but brought the country back in 1787 and got this got government back on track with the preaching of a King James 1611 authorized version by men who believed it to a country that believed it. Today, our government, it's, it's, it's been, you know, it's become nothing more than a, than a cesspool of corruption that, that has bred men and women to, uh, to, to have their own agenda, just to stay in office. There's no accountability. There's no responsibility. It's all about them. Because politics has, has moved based on Proverbs. And, and as I said, Proverbs shows you what's coming. Because Proverbs, because the political arena uh, is and always has been about three things. It's been about money, sex, and power. And this is why you have the scandal after scandal after scandal after scandal. There's no accountability. And I want to tell you something. When there's no accountability and you have absolute power, listen to me, absolute power will corrupt absolutely. I mean, come on. I know life is tough, but... I mean, I'm a nobody. I, I, I never been to college. I had to bribe my high school teacher to graduate me so I could go into the Army. And that's a true story. I'm not very smart, not very intelligent. Don't know how to fix a lot of things. That's an understatement. Don't know how to fix anything. <laughs> my greatest asset is taking things apart. My worst asset is trying to put them back together. But if I can figure this out, you ought to be able to. You're all smarter than me. You're a lot of college-educated people here, a lot of better IQs than me. You're younger, you're smarter, you're sharper, you're brighter. I mean, this is your country, mine too, but I'm, I'm on the downside of it. You're up and coming in it. It doesn't ever bother you. I mean, I look at there. I mean, I look at everything. I'm always asking myself in any situation. I shouldn't even tell you this because it gives me away. I always ask myself in any given situation, what's really going on here? Because usually what's Appearance is not really what's going on. But I mean, come on. Who in their right mind would spend $200 million to get a job as President of the United States that only pays $300,000 a year for four years? 
I mean, you have spent $200 million and you get back $1.2 million income. Does that not bother somebody? Does that take a rocket science to figure that that's not a very good deal? If you wanted to get a job and didn't have a job and you went to the guy and the guy said, I'll give you a job, and you'll say, okay, uh, but I just, I'm going to give it to somebody else. I, and you say, I'll tell you what, give me that job and I'll, and I'll, and I'll, and I'll, give, you, I'll give you a million dollars. So you give them the million dollars, you get the job, and you make $10 an hour. That's smart? This isn't smart either. I mean, why would a guy spend $200 million, raise $200 million, his party raised $200 million, when he's going to take a job that only lasts at the downside for four years and he only gets $300,000? That's $1.2 million, maybe a little more, income when you spend $200 million. The senators and congressmen spend a thousand times their salary and their income to get a job uh, or to stay in office. Why? I'll tell you why. Power and money. Total corruption. I mean, kickbacks, under-the-table deals, bribes, slush funds, drugs are rampant, free vacations from the places you give the contracts to, women, parties. I mean, there isn't a week goes by that out of Washington and D.C. that these guys that have everything and these guys that have, that have, that, that have everything they could ever want are caught up in some kind of corruption someplace along the line. I remember years ago, CNN, was, an announcer from CNN was interviewing a congressman or a senator, and, uh, uh, and he said, uh, that's a standard joke, and he says to him, he says, uh, well, Senator, I said, I'd like to ask you for our viewers, what is your view on, on, on the abortion bill? He got real flustered, and he says, I paid mine. <clears throat> that's a joke. He paid his. That's where we're at today. The mindset, completely, that there's no accountability in anything that we do. The kickbacks, that they're over the common people, you and me. It's our country. You, you pay their salaries. Your tax money goes in. It's to be used wisely and to be used in the right way for you, for your kids. I remember when Obamacare came out, and I, I, I could care less one way or the other. I'm, you know me, I'm not political at all. But I know that they get up there and they said, well, you can keep your doctor. And nobody could. Uh, it's affordable. And the rates went up 1,000%. That, that's beside the point. And yet, and yet uh, what a good deal it was to all the people. You know why I knew it wasn't a good deal to all the people? You know why I knew it was ripped with lies and just another party line they were sending you? Do you know how I know that? And I'm not the smartest guy in the world. I've never claimed to be. I'm just the fastest one in the slow class. But you know why I knew it wasn't, wasn't a real deal? Because not one congressman or not one senator signed up for it. They wanted you to sign up for it. They weren't going to sign up for it. They had their plush plan. They had everything, and you paid for it. Your tax dollars coming in gave them the greatest package of health care that not a one of them said, well, I'll lead the way and I'll sign up for it. Follow me. Everybody in America just thought, oh, this is so wonderful. See, you don't think. They got the best. We got what was left. That's Proverbs 22, 7. The rich ruling over the poor. The government of, of the people, by the people, and for the people. I don't know where that went, but it went somewhere. And I might add, many churches are the same way. Pastors, too. 
It's like the medieval times in Europe where they had the, when the Roman Catholic Church ran the world in the Dark Ages, you had the, you know, you had the, you had the Lord over the, uh, over the Smurfs, or the Serfs people. <laughs> the feudal system, that's what it was called. It's the same way. Pastors get the gob complex. They're unapproachable. You try to walk up the seam and ask for an appointment, well, you'll have to call my secretary. Well, I don't do that. I don't deal with that. We have a psychologist that deals with all those problems. He's on staff here. I don't deal with people's problems. I'm the pastor. Well, what does you do? Living like a king, requiring the people to do all the work while you sit there and be king. And hey, I agree. It's nice to be the king. I call them the popes of Christianity. The rich and power over the poor. You see it all the time. We were down at Restart doing the Christmas program. And I was out doing my deal with the guys on the street. I was coming back up. And you know when you go to Restart and you come up that one street, there, there's the park over here. And then there's the Restart's up here. And then there's a, a something over here with a long fence. And I pulled up there and I had gotten a cup of coffee. And I was just sitting there waiting. I was going to go in and see how the party was going. And this big, big, big bus, I mean a $300,000 bus, uh, came pulled up alongside of the park. I mean, it was it was it was a, a beautiful. It was a brand new, incredible. It was a rental bar, but it was incredible and it had everything in it. I was and and the door opened up, and a guy came down and you know he he he, he was he was an armed. He had a, he had a gun. He was he had a suit on, an armed. He was a some kind of security guy. And he walks out there and looks around. Then he motions down, and all these people get off this bus. They had three-piece suits on, mink coats, high heels. They were the rich and famous, believe me. And the guard is looking around over, and over in the park here, there's 200 people. You know, they all come over from Restart and smoke and get high with us. <laughs> and, 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 and they're over there, and they're, and they're looking over there, you know, and I can just see some of these guys, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so the guard's standing there, you know, and so they get their kids off, and they're all got them a little corralled, you know. Come on, come on, come on, kids. And I'm sitting right there. They're going right in front of me. Along that fence, they're hanging up little presents. Gloves, hats, scarves. They're tying them to this wrought iron fence. And the guard's standing there looking around, you know, and he's denying everything, and you can tell they're in a hurry, and they're, they're kind of like, take your kid, on a $300,000 bus, go down to the slums, get an armed guard out there, walk over and put a little present on the fence, run back in the bus. <laughs> and they're tying them up out here, you know. And all the people are over in the park kind of looking at this, you know. They don't want the gloves. They're going to steal the bus. <laughs> I see it coming. I'm getting ready to move my truck, man. I'm in the crossfire here. So I just got out of the truck, and I'm walking around, and I'm just, well, I know how to do it. Hi, Holmes. <laughs> they got their arm around me, you know. Hey, Holmes, how are you? What are all these homie people over here doing, huh? Down here in our hood. I'm one of them, man. I know what's going on. So they're all tying their little presents up there, and then, and then just like a signal, a signal. Everybody back on the bus. That bus door closes, the armed guard gets on the thing, last one on, you know, and off they go. And that was their, that was their mindset. I mean, 
right across the road was 200 people. They could have walked in there like we do, gave them these gloves and said, what do you need? And here's this and here's that. And, and here, we got these for you. And, and we, 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 you know, no, 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 no. We can't, we want to, we're, we're rich. We want to do something for the poor, but don't touch me. Who knows what you've got? Who knows where those hands have been? Who knows when's the last time you had a bath? Hey, I've seen some of you guys down on the street put your arm around them and talk to them about the Lord. You never cared where they'd been. You never cared. You know why you didn't care? Because you never forgot where you had been. Amen. So nobody went over. I mean, they, they pulled off, drove up there, and I'm thinking to myself, you guys down at the library. So I just went and took all the gloves off the deal. <laughs> oh, yeah. Why not? I was already one of them. <laughs> you know, I pulled my pants down to here so they thought I was one of them, and I just kind of walked over there and started taking them all off the thing there. Took them down to John and the guys down there on the deal and, 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 and passed them up. Some little lady came over. I gave her a scarf. Somebody else came over. I gave them this, gave them that. And I'll tell you what, I thought to myself, that is so typical of the way the rich mind thinks. You know, and I guarantee you, they're off now to, I almost said, Jason's Deli. They would never eat at Jason's Deli. <laughs> They're off back to some place where they drink their tea with a finger up. Where they have to have the right spoon and the right fork in the right order. And they're sitting around talking about what a warm feeling they have. Because they gave something to the unfortunate. Let me tell you something. You know what the unfortunate need? They don't need your... And the gloves, i got to tell you this. The gloves were the cheapest things. They went to Jolly. These people in that bus was $300,000. The people in it were probably another $200 million, And they bought their gloves at the Dollar General store. I mean, even the, even the stuff was bad. But that's the mindset. And that's the proverb. That's it, man. That's the way it goes. Hey, look, in, in, in ministry and in pastoring, you never ask people to do anything you're not willing to do yourself. We chew the same mud. We do the same work. My philosophy is my boots are the first ones on the ground, last ones to leave. You lead by example. You don't lead by decree. Same foxhole, chew the same mud, and that's the way it has to be. Because the bottom line is the riches that we have is not physical, it's spiritual. And when you have the physical, it loses the spiritual. And what you and I have, God gave to us, not for us to keep. He gave it to us so we would give it to somebody else. And, and that's what we do. Now look at the second part of that verse. And the borrower is servant to the lender. Again, there's no real commentary necessary here. This Proverbs has played itself out over and over again in 6,000 years of man's history. And no statement was ever truer than in America. People in debt beyond all belief. As I said earlier, our country, our country is $14, 15000000000000 trillion in debt over budget. And it's all because of undisciplined spending. Our system of capitalism by design is set to make you its servant to put you as the borrower in servitude to the lender for years, if not your whole life. Listen, they don't call it MasterCard for nothing. You become 
the servant to the master. And in most cases, I mean, let's be honest, in most cases, you know, uh, I had a guy say one time, well, if I just had more money, I wouldn't have all the issues I got. No, you know what? In most cases, more money will never solve our problems. It's not a problem that we need more money to get out of the mess we're in. It's the fact that we're not disciplined with what we have. The national average, and there are 300 million people in America. The national average is that every American family has over $7,000 of credit card debt. People with five and six credit cards, uh, you know, maxed out at 25 to 20% interest, you'll never get out from under that. People strapped with all that debt. I, I've seen people strapped with all that debt and have that hanging over them. And you know what? Every month they find a way to get what they want to get, to get done what they want to get, instead of paying off what they need to pay off. And they come to the place that, uh, you know, every event, every place they go, every car they buy, everything you do uh, will go back uh, to the permission of the master, the master card, the lender, who you are now servient to. And it's just that simple. <coughs> you know, I, again, remember reading in history, the great movement of the Moravians with Count Zindendorf, August Spondenfeld. They took men and women in and trained them to be missionaries. They gave them a one-way ticket to wherever they decided to go to serve the Lord. And I've said this many, many times. There were Moravian missionaries who were free men who had a burden for the black African slave trade to win them to Christ. And the only way that they could reach them was to become one of them. And they actually sold themselves into slavery that they might reach the black African for Christ, to win him to Christ. They gave up their freedom and they took as a master of them being a slave. And in a 20, 21st century Christianity, we would never think of making the Lord Jesus Christ our master. We'll make it MasterCard. Well, they gave their own freedom up to, be, uh, uh, to win the people to Christ. We'll never do that. And their master was the Lord and everything he wanted him to do. Our master is what we have and what we want to do. You know, when I grew up, we lived at 1451 Alden Avenue, Canton, Ohio. You had to Google it sometime. My house is right there. My mom and dad came to Canton during the war, World War II. Jobs were plenty in the steel mills. And my family from, from Maryland, Frostburg, Maryland, next to Cumberland, were coal mining family. And uh, they, uh, they, there was no jobs there, and so the war was on, and uh, Republic Steel's where my dad went to work, and my mom went to work at Timken Roller Bearing Company, made ammunition. And they moved there. They lived in, a, in an apartment, a little one-bedroom apartment with, with one kid, my sister. I came along later. And it was something like uh, 15 years before they ever bought their first house. My dad moved to Canton around 1942. But he bought his first new car in 1955. He either walked or drove. My mom and dad, as many of your moms and dads, they saved for everything that they did. Not today. If you're 17 years old and you don't have a brand new car, you think you're going to turn your parents in for child abuse. <laughs> Our kids grow up today with an entitlement of what they think they should have, and they never understand the value of anything. 
I went to work with my first job when I was 12 years old. Back then, you had little mom and pop stores on the corners, you know. They're all gone now. And I had a job as a stock boy. I had to go right by there to go to, go to school and walk home. And the guy that there asked me if I wanted to go to work for him. And I said, I was, I was 12 years old. I said, sure. Paid me 50 cents an hour. I'd stop after school and I'd stock the shelves and I'd work all day on Saturday. 50 cents an hour. You would be surprised what I bought as a kid for 50 cents an hour in my lifetime. And I worked that job for two or three years before I went to another job. But my mom and dad taught me some things about, about money. They never, they, never, they, they never taught me, they never taught me a, a, a lot about the Bible. But they, but they taught me a lot about, they, they taught me a lot about uh, practical things in life. They taught me by example some really good practical things in life. My mom and dad were hard workers, as probably many of your parents are. My mom was the master of the obvious. She had more sayings about different things than you could ever want. Most of them I couldn't say in public. <laughs> but they were incredibly true. And they taught me by example some really good practical life principles that I've never forgotten. And one of them, in most cases in life, you know, and I realize there are, in life you have to do something. If you're going to, you can't just go out and buy a car, a brand new, you can't get a house. I get that. So there are legitimate things, but I'm just telling you. My mom and dad taught me to live within my means. They always taught me don't spend what you don't have. My dad used to say if you can't pay cash for it and you really want it, wait till you can pay for it and save the money because he had learned that uh, if you have to wait for it, maybe by the time you don't have the money, it's not as important to you to have anymore. There's a lot of value in that. 1 Timothy 6.6 6 says that uh, godliness with contentment is great gain. Now look at verse 8. He that soweth iniquity shall reap vanity, and the rod of his anger shall fail. Now again, a, a, a pretty straightforward verse, but some things we, we need to try to remember. Remember the price of learning is repetition. Two key words here built around the concept of sowing. And the first one is the word iniquity. Iniquity, that'll be any injustice or unrighteousness, a sin or a crime that starts in our heart uh, in what Christ died and paid for. Isaiah 53, verse 6 says, God hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's our sin debt in our heart. Yet the Bible talks about in Proverbs 10, 24, Psalm 6, 8, and Psalm 14, 4, it talks about the workers of iniquity. Iniquity is a work that we do. It's a work that we do that starts in our heart. It's a work against God. And Proverbs 16, 6 says, By mercy and truth is iniquity purged. We only get the iniquity out of our heart by getting saved. And the second word here will be the word vanity. Now, we think of the word uh, as somebody being vain or self-centered and, and uh, about all about them. And, and, th and that's true. And this word is built around uh, reaping here. To reap something. But the Bible definition of vanity is a little more in-depth than that and a little more encompassing. The Bible definition of vanity is simply absolute worthlessness. Defined in the book of Ecclesiastes. Everything in the world system uh, when it comes to the Word of God is vain. It's worthless. Uh, there's nothing in this world that ought. In, in the book of Ecclesiastes, he talks about ten vanities. 
And those 10 vanities actually make up the world system and it's what people get into when they want to get rich, they want to control somebody. He talks about the vanity of wisdom in Ecclesiastes 2.13. That's worldly wisdom over God's wisdom. He talks about the vanity of labor in 2.19. That's working all your life and coming up empty at the great white throne judgment if you're unsaved or the judgment seat of Christ if you are saved. He talks about the vanity of purpose in 2.26. And boy, if there's nothing more like in, in Christians' lives today, it's Christians who are saved and on their way to heaven and going around with no purpose in life. He talks about the vanity of ambition in 4.4. What you want to do in life compared to what God wants you to do in life. It's vanity. You can do everything you want to do at the end of your life. When you meet God face to face, it's going to be worthless. He talks about the vanity of fun, 7.6. That's because most of us spell fun S-I-N. He talks about the vanity of money in 5.1. Isaiah 55, 2 says, where, where do you spend money for that which is not bread? He talks about uh, the vanity of selfness in 4, 7. All about us and the drama that just permeates our lives because of the complexity that we have in our lives. He talks about in 6, 9, the vanity of covetousness. Wanting what we want over what Christ wants for us. He talked about the vanity of reward in 8.10. Wrong motive in life. We give to get or we do to get. And the Bible says with all of that, those 10 vanities in Psalm 39.5, barely every man in his best state is altogether vanity. You know what that means? He's worthless. Showing iniquity and reaping vanity will not only lead to a disastrous life, but it will lead to a worthless life. Hosea chapter 1, verse 6, and boy, if there was ever a verse that shows you a man or a woman who's unsaved that goes through life building the ten vanities, or in many cases, a child of God who goes through life doing it his way, boy, it's Hosea 1, 6. It says, ye have sown much and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough to drink but you are not filled with drink. You clothe you, but there is none warm. He that earneth wages, earneth wages to put into a bag with holes. There it is. That's Christianity today. That's certainly the world system. Saved and on our way to heaven. And when, you, and when you, all through life, you start putting things in your bag and sowing things through iniquity and vanity. And when you get to the judgment seat of Christ, you open up that bag, nothing in it. A bag with holes. Look what it says in verse 6. Sown much, but bring in little. Verse 1 says, we eat, but we never have enough. So America runs the gamut today of being the number one country in the world of, of obesity. We drink, and we never have enough. Never satisfied. Clothes, yet not enough. Buy more. Well, we got more clothes than we got in our closet than a department store, but we need more. Everything we do in life doesn't satisfy us because the only thing that will truly satisfy us in where we're living right now is the true riches of the Word of God in your life. Everything else is vanity, Solomon said. And he says in verse 7, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Consider your ways. Now what you get instead is Hosea chapter 8, verse 7, For they have sown the wind, and they will reap the whirlwind. It hath no stock, the bud shall yield no meal, if so it yield, the strangers shall swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. Here it comes. Israel is swallowed up now 
Shall they, uh, shall they be among the Gentiles as a vessel wherein no pleasure? That's what happens. Israel in the Old Testament got vanity, went away from God, and got swallowed up by the Gentiles. They didn't hear from them anymore, no fruit. You and I in the Christian life in the New Testament, we get the same thing going in our lives. We get swallowed up by the world. In both cases, the end of the day, bag with holes. There's a song in your hymnal, I think it's 418. Great old song, it says, And Must I Go and Empty-Handed. And it's a song about going to the judgment seat of Christ and got to go in empty-handed after all that God did for you. And that's a great song. But I think most of God's people are going to wind up there when they open up that bag and all of their life as they're walking in, they're going to think about all the things because they never got in the They think that all of the things that they really love, God loves too. And you open that bag up, bag with hole, ain't nothing in it. Hey, I've met God's people. I, I guess they're God's people. You know what I think. My, my opinion is not very popular, but I'm telling you, I've watched them live 20, 30, 40 years as a so-called child of God and never one time do anything mean, meaningful for God that they didn't have some ulterior motive by doing it. They go their whole life without ever bearing any fruit whatsoever. And we live in a Christianity today that thinks that's Okay. We live in a Christianity day to think we can trust Christ, our own personal Savior, and then just go on with life, never go to church, never find a church, never get involved in anything, never, and all of our lives we just go through the motions and we think that that's okay. And, and, and I know the arguments. I get it. I've heard it all of my life. They go to their whole life without ever being any fruit. And I know, I know, I know, I get it. Well, I'm saved. I, I, I know I am. I remember the day. I prayed the prayer. Listen, salvation is not about what prayer you prayed or what church you went to when you prayed the prayer, or whatever you think about the prayer that you prayed. Simply put, salvation, and when a person truly gets saved, some things have to change. We live in a Laodicean Christianity where we get on our knees and pray the prayer. We just go out and do exactly what we did the week before. Nothing ever changes. When you truly get saved, some things have to be different. 1 Corinthians chapter, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Old things are passed away. In our lives, there is a, the direct evidence of God's life-chasing salvation. There has to be. And we kid ourselves in this Laodicean salvation. We do. And I, you know what I think. I'm telling you, man. I'm just telling you. I think that, and I know this is not true across the board, but I am telling you right now, I see a lot of God's people, a lot of God's people who claim to be saved, and yet I, it bothers me that I've never seen any evidence ever in their life of that salvation. They go through the hoops. They know what to say. But let's be honest. I told you last week, it's, it's not enough that you want to change your life. You have to be committed to that change. And that commitment to changing your life has to start with your commitment with Christ. If there is no commitment in your life with Christ, then you'll never be any commitment to change. And it bothers me when I see people who don't have any commitment to change. It makes me wonder where that commitment to Christ really began or ended. And the problem with God's people today, we're not committed to anything. Salvation without change is as worthless as the Christianity that produced it. That Bible says in Matthew 7, 16, by their fruits you shall know them. That Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3, if any man love God, the same is known of him. Hey, look, when you really love somebody, there's some things that are naturally go along with loving somebody. 
You don't love somebody and never talk to them. You don't love somebody and never give them anything. You don't love somebody and don't give them the time of day. You don't love somebody and fill your whole world around with all that you want and leave them out. But that's what people think Christianity is today. I got a big headline for you. You wait till this whole thing comes down. There are going to be a lot of people surprised. Your pastors and your churches have sold you a bill of goods. They've allowed you to live your life and do whatever you want to do without any accountability. They've never preached hard to you. You haven't heard a good message on hell since you can't remember. You've never heard a message on the judgment seat of Christ for 20 years. It's just, we need money. We need this. We need that. Oh, let's all have a great time. Let's all get saved. There's nothing that ever is impacting that changes your life and keeps you accountable. So we go through life thinking, well, I prayed the prayer. Oh, I've been to church all my life. I'm saved. Where's the fruit? Where's the fruit? Where's the evidence of that? The Bible says, try the spirits to see if they're of God. I mean, you may not like it. It may not be popular. But at the end of the day, it's the truth. When you got saved, something has to change. I want a guy to Christ this week that's been in this church for years and years and years. And, and uh, uh, we come over to see me. And I love the guy. And talk with him and, and uh, have some issues and come to find out that what I suspected was true. He had never truly been born again. And in my office, I won him to Christ this last week. And when I won him to Christ, as I do everybody, when I came down through that thing, let me tell you something. I stopped at the concept of repentance. And I said, I'm not, I, you need to be saved. God died for you on the cross. But if you are not willing to turn from where you're at and go the way God wants you to go, we ain't going any farther in this. There's already too many Christians out there that prayed the prayer, went through the hoops, that nobody explained about repentance. Repentance means that you're not going to go the same way you were going. It means there's a difference in you now. Something did change in you. Old things are passed away. All things become new. Where we got the idea that you can just get saved and then go back to the same old things you did. Drink the same stuff, smoke the same stuff, do the same things. That comes from a laity in Christianity where the powers that be are more important to them of getting from you what they can than giving you what you need. I don't want anything from you, but I want to give you one thing. It's the only thing I'll bring to the party. Like it or not like it. And you'll never find anybody who says, well, I kind of like Bob. They either love me or they hate me. I'm either the greatest guy in the world or the greatest scum slime on the planet. But I'll tell you this, I like it like that. I don't want any confusion. I don't want anything from you, and I only want to give you one thing. That's the truth. Because when we stand in the judgment seat of Christ and I got to give an account, God's not going to look at how much money I raised. He's not going to look at how big a building I built. He's not going to look at, oh, do we have a restaurant? Do we have a gymnasium? Do we have this? He's going to say, did you give those people every time you open that book the truth? All I care about. See, I don't like it. It's okay. It doesn't bother me a bit. I'd rather have you upset with me than God upset with me. 
That Bible says, if any man love God, the same is known. There's some things about loving God that just go along with it. I bet you the average child of God in this sound last week went all week long and never told God they loved him one time. I bet they went to work. I bet they went to church. I bet they went to bed at night. And I bet their, their mind was consumed with them, what they had, what they wanted, what they were doing. And not one time did they look at God and say, I love you. You ought to tell God you love him a thousand times a day. But I'll tell you what it is. I love this car. Oh, I love these shoes. Oh, I love this dress. Oh, I just love this house. Oh, I just love this. I love the decor. Oh, I love that. Oh, look at that big 67-inch. I love that television. Oh, listen to the sound. I love the sounds around. Oh, I got the brandish new I-7943 watch out there. I love it. I love this phone. I love this over here. I love this. I love that. You know what we do? We go through our whole life loving things that could never love us back. And the one being that loved us beyond belief, the one being who loved us more than anything, who gave up everything, who loved you and he loved me, we can't even tell him one time. And we're Christians? You're saved? What, did you just, did that part fall out of your Bible? Did you miss that? Well, I can see right now some of you aren't happy, so I'm staying here for a while. I'm telling you right now, you've been fooled. You have been deceived. You actually think that you can call yourself a Christian because you go to church, you carry a Bible, right Bible, wrong Bible, it doesn't matter, and you actually think that you can go through your life and never one time, not one time in your life, Ever give him anything of yourself? How many of your marriages would last if that's the way you treated your spouse? How long do you think if you got married to somebody, picture you getting saved, and then you went on your honeymoon and then you never talked? She went her way, you went her way, you took this tour, she took this one. You ate in separate restaurants. You only called her or talked to her or him to her when you needed something. Can't find my keys. I need this, I need that. How, how long do you think that relationship went? Let me ask you this. Better yet, would that be a real relationship? Well, what makes you think that you can have a relationship with Christ per se, never talk to him, never do anything with him, never have any meaningful dialogue other than when you need something, Oh, last part of verse 8, and the rod of his anger shall fail. And what he's saying here is this. I need to get off that. What he's saying here is this. And the key word here is rod. Like the millennial rod of iron in Revelation chapter 12. Christ iron rule with a rod. It, rod means judgment, like Moses' rod in the book of Exodus. To rule over something. 
It always means, you know, the hard line of keeping them under submission by beating them with a rod, so to speak. And what he's saying is that when you, you try to rule with anger and iniquity through vanity, it'll always fail. It'll go on for so long, but somebody's going to get fed up with it and going to and overthrow you in time. I mean, the lessons of history. Henry VIII was a great king. He was the most tyrannical king probably in England. And he went on for a while, but he got overthrown. Napoleon, king of France, he got overthrown. Now, the history of the popes, they all were corrupt. They, they bought their offices and did everything. They all got overthrown. The Greeks and the Romans, they all got overthrown. The Kaiser in World War I, he got overthrown. Hitler in World War II, he got overthrown. He had a thousand-year Reich. Lasted 12 years. A little short. Stalin was one of the most wicked leaders in the history of the 20th century. Every 20, 30 years, he'd take all the military guys from Colonel up and assassinate them. Start fresh. Call it a purge. He held Russia in an iron grip from he took office till he died someplace in the mid-50s. And he was assassinated. Somebody poisoned him. You can only rule through iniquity with a rod of anger for so long. And it's true of your family. If you don't rule your kids with love and biblical principles and you rule them with a rod of iron, it'll only go on for so long. Your rod of anger will fail. They only take so much and then they're done with it. The rod of his anger will be the force or the effect of his anger against the people that he's trying to dominate. And every nation in history failed in that. So as we, we move back through the book of Proverbs, we see some common truth that will help us put a complete and total effect in our lives. You know, I'm asked many times by people my opinion on things. And, and you know, Outside the Bible, my opinion is worthless. Uh, a guy will ask me, he'll say, hey, you know what, uh, I'm, 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 gonna, I'm decided I asked so-and-so this girl to marry me, and I just wondered what you, what you thought about it. And it's not just marriage. I get asked about things like that all the time. I, I always tell them this, clear and plain. I mean, people come to you late like, my approval is okay for you to do something. A guy said one time, well, I've got God's blessing. Let me tell you something. You don't need God's blessing. Bob's blessing. You need God's blessing on what you're doing. My blessing won't, get you, won't buy you a cup of coffee at a cheap dime store restaurant. You need God's blessing in your life. Somebody said, well, I've got God's bless, Bob's blessing on it. Whoop-de-doo. You have God's blessing on it. That's the key. You don't need to worry about my blessing. So I tell them, it will be the greatest thing you ever did or it will be the worst thing you ever did and be an absolute disaster. I've said it a thousand times. If it starts wrong, it usually ends wrong. 
I tell them, if God was in it and you did it by the book and followed the principles, it'll be the greatest thing you ever did. If you didn't and you want to drag God into it without ever doing it by the book and doing it your way and following the principles and taking every shortcut you can find, it'll be an absolute disaster. It's just that simple. Life is just that simple. You're either going to be the wise man and follows Proverbs or you're going to be the fool that doesn't. You know, in the army, we used to have a saying, three ways to do something. The right way, the wrong way, and the army way. Now, you know, in life, it's the same thing. You have three ways you can do something in life. You can do it the right way. The Bible says there's many devices in a man's heart. He thinks it's right. You can do it the right way, or you can do it the wrong way, or you can do it God's way. And God's way is always the right way. The world will tell you this is the right way to do it. Your friends will say, this is the right way to do it. People are always going to the front. What do you think I ought to do? I got this problem. Trying to get their advice. What, what good is their advice when you have the greatest book on the planet that will give you God's opinion on it? You know what the problem is? We don't want God's opinion on it. Proverbs is about a wise man who does it God's way and is blessed beyond measure. Or a foolish man who does it his way, the wrong way, without God's blessing, and he winds up being a fool and his life's a disaster. This book is absolute standard of what God's opinion on every day. And when it says that the rich are always over the poor, and the lender is a, uh, the, uh, the, the, the borrower is always a servant to the lender, when it talks about uh, iniquity and, and vanity and all of the things that we reap and we sow, he's standing back and he's saying to you and me, hey, look, that's a big world out there. And you're going to get caught up with all kinds of things. People are going to try to sell you everything. They're going to try to get you to buy into whatever philosophy comes along that they can get something from you. You're in that. You're faced with that. There's no way you're going to get around that. So you have to have something that will put you higher to be able to see it. And that's why I'm giving you the greatest book in the Bible, the book of Proverbs. That's why I want you, every one of you, to look at any circumstance in life, your government, your family, your church, do this, this, that. And I want you to see it not as man tries to make it appear. Cut through all of that and see it as God sees it. Is it the real deal? And then you take that same high-powered ability to look at those things and you turn it towards yourself. Here I am, saved 10, 15, 20 years. And you could put the times that I've told God I loved him. You could put the times that I just put my arm around God and put my head on his breast and just said, I love you so much and just had a, a love fest with God. You could count that time uh, on a man's hand that lost three fingers in an industrial accident. Yet we're Christians. This is, this is 20th century Laodicean Christianity. Christian life without change. Churches without power in preaching. You're okay, I'm okay. As long as we do nice things and we all get along and you come to church and you do what we tell you to do, you're just fine. And you're just lost in the mirage of all of the stuff that goes on. And yet you personally, in your own personal life, nothing has changed. You still think the old thoughts. You still go to the old places. You still do the old things. You still talk the old way. You still do all of those things. 
and yet now you would defend yourself to the hilt that, oh, I'm a Christian. Yeah, you're a Laodicean Christian. My Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things become new. Now, I'm not saying that when you get saved, you don't struggle with stuff. I don't say that there's not a process to get out of what you're into. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about folks who have been saved 20, 30 years, and there is no evidence in their life. They care absolute nothing about a soul being saved. I remember one time years ago, not too many years ago, I had a guy and his wife that were always complaining about everything. They didn't like much. And they come to me one time, and I, they were talking about this and talking talk about the things they didn't like. And I just asked them, I said, you know what? You've been in this church now for, I don't know, six, seven, eight years. I said, uh, just take the last six months. Tell me who gotten, who had gotten saved in this church. And they had a bunch of people just gotten saved. I said, tell me who's gotten saved in this church. He said, man, he said, that's, a really, that's a good question. I said, it's a very good question. He didn't know. You see, God's people get so caught up in folk and all the negative things, they never see what God is really doing. And you do that in your own world. And you make the things of the world somehow conducive into a Christian life, that it's okay to do these things. It's okay to be this. It's okay now if I just, if I just keep these old things in my life. And God never does a thing with you. They'll go through your whole life. It's, in, it's conceivable for me to a person to be saved 40 years. I'm just talking to you. It's inconceivable to me. I mean, you have your own rationalization, justification for it. God bless you. It's inconceivable to me for a person to be saved 20, 30 years and never win a soul to Christ. I, I, I don't understand that. I, I don't get it. And I'm not this guy that says you've got to win everybody you meet. But my God, in 40, 40 years, you'd think there was somebody who ran across your path. I mean, you think there was somebody that God would put in your life or somebody you would open up the scriptures to? Come on. 30 years? 20 years? I'm trying to get you to see the reality of how that we become servants to all the things that are over us. It wants to take us, squelch us, and that proverb is such a great thing that we, we reap the iniquity. We sow the iniquity. We reap the vanity. We sow the things in our Christian life that have nothing to do with God, and the vanity is our life becomes worthless. We get to that deal, we open up that bag, big holes in the bottom of it. Not a thing that was worth keeping. Well, we'll hold up there.